As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show, my name is Ryan Bailey and today we're taking a look at the Champions League UEFA and CONCACAF versions, baby, because variety is the spice of life. Joining me today is a man whose analysis is harder than a Phil Foden strike, it's Taylor Rockwell. <laughs> I'll take that. It was a good goal. It was a good strike. And I will take that comparison. Thank you for that, my friend. That ball that he hit went in, I think it was about 200 miles an hour. I, I just, uh-huh. I would not want to be a goalkeeper getting in front of a shot like that. Phil Foden's boot is terrifying. I won't disagree with you. I think maybe some people should have gotten in front of it, maybe a little <laughs> bit faster, and that would have been helpful. But that aside, I think it was a pretty good finish. Yeah, near post finish, goalkeepers, etc., etc., <laughs> cliches, blah, blah, yep. blah. Joining Taylor and I is a man who's making waves in the soccer industry bigger than those made by paint companies insulting Tottenham Hotspur, Joe Lowry! (laughs) I only sort of know what you're referencing because I think I saw you tweet about this this morning as I was sort of scrolling through my timeline. I don't really know what you're talking about, but either way, hello, Ryan. Hello, Joe. (laughs) Dear Joe, let me inform you. So, uh, is Dulux a paint company in the US, by the way? Do you guys have that? I don't. You might be shocked no. to know, but I'm not very familiar with paint companies locally or oh, you know man. abroad. You need to spend some we more may. time in Home Depot, Joe. That's what I say. So it's my, my, it's most of my weekends as a as a as a middle aged man. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for strolling. I don't think we do. We might, but they're not, they're not one of the like the main ones I think of. Like Sherman Williams is up there right. for uh, like like the top tier when it comes to America. I don't know about <laughs> you, what happening? you Brits do. If we, well, we'll do paint rankings on another episode, I think. But okay. uh, the, 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 the Sherman good. Williams equivalent in the UK is Dulux. They announced a sponsorship, a partnership with Tottenham Hotspur, and they proceeded on Twitter to absolutely sledge Tottenham <laughs> throughout the morning, uh, saying such things as, someone said, uh, you should paint the uh, trophy cabinet. They replied, don't be silly. Surfaces should be dust-free before painting. And lots of stuff oh. in that kind of oof. <laughs> Like, uh, Dulux's uh, sponsor or its mascot is a dog. Someone said, can the dog play centre-back? Uh, he might do a better job, said Dulux. Uh, Eric Dyer fuming somewhere, I presume. But, um, yeah, this... That's, a way, that's an interesting way to start, yeah. that relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the thing. It's, it's like you announce a sponsorship and then immediately trash your team. 
and everyone's laughing at how ridiculous this is. And Dulux have since offered an apology and they've published this apology mm-hmm. on Twitter and it's just gone out uh, as we speak. But here's me, the conspiracy theorist, the cynical one thinking it was all a ploy because you know what's happened? I'm talking about their paint brand on a podcast yep. right now. We're all talking about it. It, it worked. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's the most uh, acceptable way to get people talking about it. They didn't commit a horrible error. They just uh, made some some jokes that maybe Spurs fans wouldn't like. So, yeah, I, th- I think it had the intended objective for the official paint sponsor. I mean, Definitely a necessary thing. Jokes that Spurs fans wouldn't like. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big, you know, that's a broad church. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they've certainly honed in on the, the, the pain of the empty trophy cabinet. But, uh, I mean, this is, this is part of a growing thing of, it's mainly brands, but soccer clubs do it too, of, tweeting and being on social media like they're your friends and talking casually and colloquially and like they are in the first person and being cheeky. Mm-hmm. Taylor, do you love a cheeky brand? I I genuinely don't care. <laughs> that is my answer to that question. <laughs> like, I mean, I think it's it's good that they're interacting. I mostly just appreciate it when they respond to help requests because I've definitely gone that route as companies have made it harder and harder to find actual solutions to problems on their websites. I, I really appreciate that. So if they're responding to DMs about like, hey, uh, I booked tickets with you and now those tickets don't exist and they respond, that's great. If they're not responding because they're making cheeky comments elsewhere, <laughs> I have less patience for it. <laughs> Very well. It sounds like you have less patience for this conversation. So I think we should probably move on <laughs> to the Champions League as well. Um, gentlemen. Correct. <laughs> there we go. The cream has risen to the top of this competition. By that, I mean three petrodollar-rich teams are in the semifinals. Wholesome fun for all of us in this Gazprom-sponsored competition. What a time yeah. to be alive, etc., etc., and so on. Gentlemen, why don't we start off with our first of our uh, UEFA Champions League semi-final roundups with Liverpool against Real Madrid. This one finishing tied at zeros, which is one of my favourite um, American ways of saying it was nil-nil. Uh, 3-1 on aggregate. This one finished to Real Madrid. Taylor, let's start with you. Uh, Liverpool smashing bus windows, but not smashing the back of the net in this one. It seemed yeah. like there was... It's, it's a bit of a Liverpool blueprint for this season, isn't it? Creating lots of chances, but not finishing them. Yeah, and I started with this game. I jumped around a little bit more than I normally do. And watching this live, it felt like a statement of intent in those first like nine minutes or so. Liverpool kept winning the ball back. They kept pressing high. They kept, kept getting chances. And it felt like, oh, this is a statement of what's to come. Eventually, they're going to find a way through. And then to go back and watch it knowing that they don't, Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. Knowing the result helps you understand what's happening. But if anything, those chances start to feel more and more like problems themselves. And there's the first one of the opening minutes when Salah has played through. Mm. He doesn't take it as cleanly as maybe we've seen him do in the past. He hits it right at the goalkeeper. No goal there. And it just seemed like there wasn't that connectivity that we're used to from Liverpool. And that's been a thing for them this season. Sometimes it's there. Sometimes it's not. And then as the game goes on, they continue to get chances. They continue to cross balls out of the box. But it's not the sort of high percentage, quick combination, and suddenly there's three or four different people who could take a shot. It's more of everybody's just desperately trying to create something, and I think in the end they weren't desperate enough to fully be able to create. And when you say connectivity, do you mean with that final Mm -hmm. ball, presumably? Yeah, or just even the way, like, think of Liverpool at their most deadly last season, and it's winning a ball deep, 
but then it's a pass forward and it's a pass out wide and it's a pass forward and it's a pass to the other side and it's just like one and two touch quick combinations you can tell that everybody has drilled so much that they know exactly where they need to be when they're in transition when they're breaking into the attack there's an overlapping run that they know is coming and they have a feeling that that overlapping run is going to pull somebody wider so then there's a secondary run into that space that's now been opened up and you can see that sort of combination play all over the field and I think this season we've seen less of that in in this game we saw moments of it and then we saw Liverpool not able to take advantage of those chances which seemed odd and then we saw other moments when it was like oh that pass isn't quite on and now I've got to cut it all the way back to a center back and we'll build from there and there wasn't that electricity to the attack for Liverpool yeah lack of electricity yeah go ahead Joe I just wanted to add in I'm curious as to how you guys define chances, because when I watched Liverpool in this game, I saw them have a lot of the ball, yes, which makes sense, right? They're coming back from that first leg. They need goals, and if you're Real Madrid, you don't need goals. You don't need to overexpose yourself. And we still saw Real Madrid attack some, but they didn't do a whole lot of, of you know, we're going to throw everyone forward and really try to break you down at Liverpool. It was a lot more of Liverpool being on the ball and, and having the ball, But I guess I would argue that Liverpool didn't actually create all that much in this game. They had it in the final third. It was a lot of crosses in in possession in that attacking area, which is a part of how Jurgen Klopp wants to play. The crosses were from decent areas, I would argue. Some good balls in from Trent Alexander-Arnold. But I didn't see a lot of clear-cut chances for Liverpool. Did I miss that? Or, Or are we maybe just defining that term a little bit differently, Taylor? Uh, Well, I think this is, like, if I can bridge the gap with what I was saying in the beginning with the idea that, like, in those first 10 minutes, it felt like, oh, well, Liverpool have their foot on the gas and it's going to go from there. And then as the game goes on, I I I think it gets, like, less potent in the way they're approaching this game because in those first couple minutes, there's the shot for... Salah, there's the, like, Mane skinning Valverde, getting in behind, he squares. It's just a little bit ahead of Firmino, but then Salah gets there, he gets a shot, and it gets blocked out, or maybe it goes just wide for a goal kick or a corner. And there's a few more of those early on where I wouldn't say they're... Like, I think the Salah one is high XG would be my guess, mm, but I wouldn't say there's yeah. a ton of those. I think you're right, Joe. But I think it was, like, in those opening minutes, it's like, oh, it's just ahead of Firmino. And mm. if it had just been a little bit, like, further like, closer to him, that's going to be a goal. I bet next time it is. And then next time it was still ahead of him. And then the time after sure. that, it was a little bit further ahead of him. And so they're all sort of similar. There's a lot of similar moments. But I think you're correct that Liverpool don't turn those into more – I've already said potent once on the show. Just stronger attacking chances. (laughs) I think, if anything, they get more and more desperate and thus get more and more low percentage, if that makes sense. I mean, No, yeah, that makes sense. There there were players like James Milner having pretty clear chances. And I suppose there's a few instances when Salah sort of had the ball underneath himself and didn't quite execute as well. But I I would say that the front three, maybe Salah and Mane, didn't... There were chances that, like, two years ago, they would have absolutely stuck in the net whereas they took a yeah. bit too long to get, it, to get it unloaded here. The lack of electricity, as Taylor would say, might contribute to that. <laughs> Is that fair to say, Taylor? Yeah, I, I think so. I think electricity, connectivity, and just belief. that mm. Contrasted with that Phil Foden shot you mentioned earlier, and that's a player who, Joe and I talked about this with Daryl DK, I think earlier in the, in the week, time has lost all meaning. It was last week we <laughs> talked about this. That like A player who backs themselves when they're winding up to shoot and is saying, like I'm going to hit this, this is going in, or just like, I've got a chance, I'm going to take it, rather than, uh, I hope I don't mess up, I hope, I hope I don't make a mistake. The person who backs themselves and believes the whole way is the person who is going to score, and the person who doesn't isn't. And I think there were chances, you're right, Ryan, it, uh, for Liverpool that last season, the season before, I think there is that just kind of automatic nature to the goal. And this time there was just 
a little bit of hesitation, a little bit more of a delay. I think also teams defending deeper like Real Madrid have and putting numbers in the middle, but also blocking the channels a little bit. It makes those opportunities harder to come by and certainly the clear-cut ones even more so. Joe, I want to get your take if we switch to Real Madrid and on their defending because it felt like in quite a lot of instances in this game, Liverpool had a lot of space in the box. They got in behind a few times and it felt like, you know, this Real Madrid defence, um, they, they they let them in once or twice and when they shouldn't have. But So that makes me think that was bad defending. But on the other side, we had some really good performances here. Valverde was outstanding. Militao was outstanding in the back for, for Real Madrid in this one. And overall, they, they, they were just quite... I use this word too much, but professional with their approach because they, they didn't foul on the press. They resisted the urge to do that. It was, we mentioned Eric Dyer a minute ago. He would have given away you know, five or six penalties, it felt like, to this Liverpool team. But Whereas Real Madrid seemed quite relatively calm in comparison, if that makes sense, Joe. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you. I think one of the most underratedly difficult things in soccer is playing low in your own half, defending deep in your own half, and staying composed and moving as a unit, shifting side to side. And Real Madrid did some of that in this game. Like I talked about, Ryan, with you and Graham on yesterday's show with PSG. They defended very disciplined in their own half. And Real Madrid may be a little bit less so, but I still thought within their defensive structure and within within the times that they didn't have the ball and they were back defending, I thought they did some things really, really well. So the two ways that I noticed Liverpool really trying to attack. We talked about in possession, they put in crosses the other one was they would go quickly in transition, and Taylor, you addressed this some already with that early Salah chance. There were other moments in there as well. So when Liverpool did try to get out in transition, one thing I thought Real Madrid did really well was get numbers back behind the ball quickly. Within seconds of losing the ball, Real Madrid would have six or seven players back, and the space was gone. Or, or maybe if Liverpool had gone a little bit faster, it would have been there. But the, between those, those factors, the combination of those factors, with mostly Real Madrid getting numbers behind the ball and shoring things up defensively, it made life really difficult for Liverpool. I also thought Real Madrid, yeah, especially later on in the second half, they did allow uh, Liverpool's attackers to have a little bit more space in the box, and, and when Thiago comes on and the shape changes, Liverpool do find a little bit more space in those areas, but when the ball did go into the box, Real Madrid closed it down quickly. Casemiro, uh, Nacho, Militao, they would close down the ball and just suffocate any time Liverpool would have the ball in those spaces. So yeah, there, there was a split second there, but then as soon as you can say it, as soon as you can see it, as soon as you can take it, it's gone, right? So I, I think Real Madrid did a lot of, of nice things defensively in this game, even though it wasn't a, a perfect performance from them by any means. Yeah, because I think fundamentally Liverpool, much like Ricky Bobby, want to go fast and they want to attack as quickly as they can. And if Madrid can clog some lanes so that maybe the way they would prefer to attack isn't on and so they have to go wide with an extra pass and then try to play it in from there. Anything you can do to delay and disrupt their primary method of attacking, which is that sort of really quick, really efficient, fast smash and grab sort of goal, and now the, the other team has to get one back, and now they're going to be a bit more open, and then Liverpool can sort of play a game that's more comfortable. Once you start to sit in and frustrate and slow them down, they have to figure you out. And certainly they have the personnel to do that, but is that necessarily what they've been training and drilling? Like, maybe, but it's not the way that they tend to prefer to attack. So once you make a team go to their sort of plan B... I would argue you've already got a little bit of that advantage. And so to Joe's point, I think dropping into a sometimes a 5-4-1, sometimes a 4-5-1, depending on where, where Casemiro wanted to be, I thought that was pretty smart in giving Liverpool the ball but making them have to find a way through. And even with, say, Federico Valverde starting at right back, I think they only had 
one of their normal, like, of their ideal defenders yeah. starting in that back four. Like, that Liverpool definitely targeted him in the opening minutes, and that they were able to ride that and find a way to deal with that pressure uh, speaks volumes of the way I think Zidane set his team up. I think also there was a practicality to the way uh, Madrid wanted to play. I think it's in the ninth minute. There's a giveaway from Kabak. Madrid get a corner out of that one. And man, do they take their time getting that corner <laughs> set and then taking that. Like, it's just, I think, anything you can do to slow it down and make Liverpool change it up. And I think there is an awareness that in, after those first 15 or 20 minutes, they're not going to be able to press nearly as intensely as they did in the opening minutes. And if you can get to that point, you establish yourself more. You change things up a little bit more. And I think that's what they did. I thought it was a really good game from Real Madrid. I don't even think it was that poor of a game from Liverpool. I just thought Madrid did what they needed to do and did it well. Taylor, I think it was last week when we talked about Zidane and whether he's lucky or mm-hmm. you know whether he's a genius. And maybe he's a combination of the two. Well, I think we talked about his triple substitute in the, in the first leg of this one. It did seem, as we say, amazing game management once again from here. And the, the team selection worked out very well. Was, you know, Valverde at right back and you know, no, no Ramos, no, no Varane here and elsewhere, no Carvajal, no Vasquez, and still getting a job done at Anfield, which is maybe less of an impressive feat this season than previous seasons. But, I mean... Once again, I pose the question, is, mm-hmm. <laughs> is Zidane lucky here? Because we, 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 pick, we pitch him as one of these managers who you know, just gets very talented players and lets them do their thing rather than necessarily having a set philosophy and system. Uh, no, I don't think he was lucky. It's certainly not in this game. And I think when you've won like three Champions Leagues in a row <laughs> at one point. Uh, maybe there's some luck involved, but I yeah. think also you've got to have good game management. You've got to know how to get the results over the course of time. And I think looking at the team he utilized, like I talked about, like three of the four are not his usual starters in the back line. I would say Asensio is probably not the person he would have picked to start a Champions League quarterfinal if he had everybody at his uh, disposal. I'm not even sure Vinicius Jr. starts if he has the full-strength team that he can oh, choose from. Oh, he loves from. Vinny, doesn't he? So, he does now, and I think, and it's because of what Vinny offered in this game as a sort of could drop in and be part of that sort of defensive block if need be, but was always an outlet and has the pace to back that up. I think he utilized him really well, and I think it's I'm I'm hard. It's difficult for me to say, like I'm hard pressed to say what it is exactly that Zidane does, and I think that's because he does a lot of stuff very well. I don't think he's like a genius tactician, but I don't think he's a dummy. I don't think he's a genius locker room manager, but again, I don't think he's a dummy. I think he does enough stuff really well and puts people in the ideal positions and I think backs them and backs his players seems to have the locker room behind him I think he just does a lot of stuff very well versus some managers who maybe do some things incredibly well and some things less so and the gap between is where you tend to find inconsistencies in results I would like to categorically state to the listeners that I do not think Zinedine Zidane is a dummy (laughs) he is probably the scariest man I've ever met in my life I think I've told the story here I interviewed him around the 2013 Champions League final uh, and I posed my question to him and he, it was in English, and he replied in French because he refuses to speak English despite, <laughs> despite understanding it. And his steely gaze still haunts my dreams. It still haunts <laughs> my dreams. I guarantee he's a very good-looking man, and he, um, but he, the, the assuredness in which he answered my question in French, and I'm nodding it on, going, uh-huh, oui, oui, maintenant, oui, okay. Uh, and also, this was like a, a, for, a, for a certain sports apparel company where I was uh, interviewing him, and they had this technology where they could... Um, kick a ball and you put it um, uh, wherever you kicked it on this wall which was like a goal it sort of marked on the wall where the ball hit and it, it had this the ball had a chip in it which told you the velocity blah 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 so Zidane shows up in a suit with like you know the kind of nice black polished shiny shoes 
and he's ripping penalties into the both top corners. Yep. <laughs> he's just unreal. And when you see someone who is so gifted at kicking a ball um, as him, it's quite breathtaking when you see it up close as well. So that was a that was a joy and, it never, and also terrifying. Yeah. It never goes away. That that's the thing that like it, it does those sort of things. Like yeah, they're maybe not gonna have the first touch they've always had. Luka Modric will always have that first touch even when he's ninety. But I like to draw a comparison in a totally unearned way. Uh, like when Colin Clark, who used to play for Northern Ireland, I know you both are are very familiar with him. You're probably not, of course. Uh, yes. But he, when he took over the Richmond Kickers, they had a thing where like at halftime there was a little circle that they would have, like, one person come out. It was, like, a giant, like, kicker's graphic, and they had one little circle at the top that you could try to put a ball through. Uh, and if you did, you got, like, some sort of prize. And nobody did it the entire season. And I think Colin Clark, just after the game once, was like, oh, yeah, sure, and, like, did it from, like, double the distance you were supposed to be from and hit it perfectly. And it's like, oh, right, that's what, a, like, a person who's been to the World Cup and scored goals there looks like when they're aiming for a circle. And I'm guessing Zidane was the same thing. I would not be, but Zidane could probably pull that off, I'd bet. Yeah, no one was going second after him. Let's put it like that. <laughs> um, to, to, to get back to this game briefly, just before we leave it. Um, sure. T- Taylor, you mentioned Shake and Bake. And, and, uh, sorry, you mentioned Ricky Bobby. And I, I will mention I Shake and Bake with uh, Modric mm-hmm. and Kroos, um, yep. <laughs> who will be my chosen Shake and Bake buddies. My tattoo, which crossed my chest, which of course reads, when Tony Kroos doesn't have a good game, mm-hmm. Real Madrid don't win holds true kind of in this game, it doesn't does. it? Because it wasn't a classic game from him. I think he had one shot, not a lot of possession in this one. Modric didn't have a classic either. So uh, um, no shake and bake here, my, uh, my overriding point. Well, they didn't have a great game. They didn't have a bad game, so they got a draw. So it continues. <laughs> and I, I want to add game, on so that. They got an average result. Yeah. <laughs> Adding to this wherever we're at right now, I think, Ryan, <laughs> your theory holds true in this game because... Remember back to the first leg, and we saw Tony Kroos just rip Liverpool apart with this passing, especially from deep. It led to the first goal for Vinny, who I, I don't know if that's an Italian mobster or the name of a Brazilian left winger. But for Vinny, that long ball over the top led to the first goal, and then he had another key pass later in that game that led to another goal for Real Madrid. In this game, Liverpool came out and said, no, you're not going to do that to us again, and they put either Firmino or Wijnaldum or Salah on him almost all the time. Every time Tony Kroos would drop deep in possession for Real Madrid, one of those three Liverpool players would go and step to him really quickly. If you go back and watch, there's a moment, I believe it's in the 14th minute, 12th minute, excuse me, Tony Kroos drops back and Firmino immediately looks, sees him, closes him down. Then it happens three times in the 15th minute, again in the 16th minute. I just stopped counting at this point. But Liverpool, one of their main defensive game plans, or one of the the biggest parts of their defensive game plan in this game, was to make sure that Tony Kroos didn't have space to do anything. And it it largely worked. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel better than Ryan? Yeah. Do you feel better? I feel much better. Thank you very much. I'm, okay. I'm glad my, uh, certainly glad my tattoo isn't in vain. Um, one other thing I wanted to say <laughs> about this game is there was a reason for me, an, an indicator of why the right team went through here. And it was when James Milner um, put one on Karim Benzema relatively early on. And then you saw Casemiro in front of both benches absolutely put a dirty one on James, Mina, James Milner, avenging him effectively. And that, to me, is not just hot-headedness. That was, that was a show of team spirit. That was like, we want this, we protect our own kind of thing. I felt that was, that was bigger than the moment almost, that sort of <laughs> avenging of the tackle that Casemiro did there. Have I read too much into that, or is there anybody with me on that? Taylor. I mean, <laughs> you, you kick us, we'll kick you back. I think, yeah, I think he knew what he was doing. He knew it was a yellow. He did the walk away 
that a player does when they know they're getting a yellow oh, yeah. card. And it's just like, I knew what I was doing. I'm not trying to defend it. I'm not trying to diffuse this. I did what I did, and now I'm walking away. You're absolutely right. He does it right in front of Jurgen Klopp, yeah. too. So I think it 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 lays down a marker, and there is something to be said for it, that while you might think, like, oh, well, that motivates them. You're kicking them. Now they're going to be mad. It also is like, no, that also reminds you of what is going to happen every time you receive a ball and it's kind of loose. You might get that kick, and it will have an impact on some players, that they'll pull up a little bit or they'll be a little bit hesitant mm. to go into it, and that's also part of what you're going for there. If you're watching in 4K, by the way, you would have seen a little tear of pride run down the cheek of Zinedine Zidane <laughs> as Casemiro uh, <laughs> lunged in there. Uh, so we have Real Madrid going into the semifinals. We also have Manchester City joining them. We'll be talking about that very shortly after these messages. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Pep has a semi-final place. It took a long time for him to get that semi and to, for it to come and so on, but City finally in the final four. Opta telling us that um, Pep Guardiola has reached his eighth UEFA Champions League semi-final, the joint most in the history of the competition alongside Jose Mourinho. Stradix Ferguson sounds like a slacker by Opta standards there. Um, the, the best comment I saw uh, from this game, gents, was it turns out that Sane was the cursed one to exit the quarterfinals, not Manchester City. So uh, maybe we've uh, we've released uh, released them from their uh, from their curse here. Um, Joe, why don't we start with uh, Borussia Dortmund? How did they set up for this one, and how did they try to get the better of Manchester City, who they almost tried to mirror in some ways? There were some similarities between how these two teams approached the game. Looking at Dortmund, they came out in a 4-3-3 that sometimes looks like a 4-2-3-1. It's a shape that we've seen from Terzic for the last few games now. It's flexible in midfield. Bellingham can step high and almost look like a number 10 in, in brief spells, and then he'll move back over and become an 8, and Dahoud will be the other 8 in front of the number 6, which in this game was Emre Chan. So they came out in this 4-3-3, and like the first leg, they tried to play a little bit. They tried to build from the back under pressure. They tried to high press in moments, and I thought they looked good doing it, just like they did in the first leg. They didn't end up creating a ton of clear-cut chances in this game overall. Dortmund only had about 0.55 xG relative to City's 2.53 xG over the course of this game. I don't have the numbers based off of timestamps, like you know, for the first 15 minutes or for the first 30 minutes. But I'd be willing to bet that Dortmund were at least close to level on XG for the first 30 minutes of this game. I thought they came out and they looked solid moving the ball. They get that goal in the 15th minute from Jude Bellingham. A lot of things went right for Dortmund early on. City looked frustrated and they, they actually changed some tactics themselves to get back in this game. City, not Dortmund. Uh, overall, man, a, a pretty strong performance from Dortmund, especially in that first 15, 20, 30 minutes. 
Definitely. So can we talk about Erling Haaland a little bit as well? He seemed to have been kept quiet across uh, both of these fixtures, you could say. Um, in the stat here, including the international break, Haaland has now had seven games in a row where he hasn't managed to score. Was this, Taylor, um, Haaland's shortcomings or Man City successfully keeping him under wraps? I can recall at least one or two times where he got the better of John Stones. Um, but what, what, do we credit Man City for that or do we uh, uh, castigate Erling Haaland for it? Uh, probably a little bit of, I'd say somewhere between, leaning towards maybe praising Man City. Because at the same time, what, Dortmund scored two goals over the course of these two legs. Uh, Holland assisted one and basically assisted the other one because he plays it in for, is it Dahoud who gets the shot that's blocked and then it goes to Bellingham to score? Yeah. But it is Holland who gets that ball and kind of uh, pressures John Stones, holds it up, finds the pass. So I think, like, basically creating two goals is still... A decent performance, but I think for Erling Holland, that's like the most contained he can be. So I think, like with that said, I think City did a very good job of doing some things that did limit his effectiveness. I think they tried to get physical with him to the extent they could without picking up a bunch of cards. There's a moment when John Stones gets sort of frustrated and kind of puts him in a headlock very briefly, <laughs> and then it is a free kick, but it's not a card, but it does disrupt the play. I thought that was pretty good. And then I think they also did a good job of trying to starve him for service and making it difficult for anybody to really find him with those sort of direct balls. The one time Dortmund do that I can recall is the time they end up scoring. So I think you can see why they were trying to target that. But then I think also Dortmund kind of limited his effectiveness themselves with the way they set up after that goal. So it's a few different factors there. But in the end, I think I'll give credit to City for it. It feels, Joe, like it's a crapshoot as, as to which Borussia Dortmund player is going to stand out in any given Borussia Dortmund game, and they do have a bit of a roller coaster reputation for form in general. But uh, I would argue that Drew Bellingham was uh, the standout player, perhaps from both legs here, and I'm excited to see him and Phil Foden lift the uh, European <laughs> Championships trophy this summer. Um, looking forward to that very much indeed. What did you make of him, Joe? And what did you make of the uh, Dortmund midfield? I thought Bellingham was great in this game. He gets that goal, and he almost had a goal in the first leg as well, so he could have come out of this tie with one goal in each game. He he kind of conducts the Dortmund midfield, at least in higher areas. Maybe Dahoud does a little bit more of that deeper down, even though neither one of those guys is the six. Bellingham, Bellingham does so many different things. He'll drop, he'll step, he'll go higher. Defensively even, he played a key role in this game. The way Dortmund were defending... They, they were in a 4-5-1, which is natural when you start in a 4-3-3 in attack. The wingers just drop back. But as City would rotate the ball, Bellingham and Dahoud, both of them, to give credit to each of them right here, they would step forward. Or even Emery Chan sometimes would step forward to pressure City as they would rotate the ball in possession. That limited the amount of time that City could have on the ball. And Bellingham was a big part of that, stepping to a center back when the ball rotated over to his side. It was almost a complete performance from Jude Bellingham. I'm not going to say it was perfect. But he's so smooth on the ball. We saw, Taylor, you and I talked about on Tuesday, his ability to score goals off of a Gio Reyna assist for mm -hmm. Borussia Dortmund over the weekend. So this is now a little bit, I don't know if two makes a pattern, but it is certainly a trend of Bellingham being a danger in the box from a goal-scoring standpoint. And then also in possession, he brings a lot. And defensively, he brought a lot in this game too. Jude Bellingham, Ryan, Jude Bellingham's quite the player. 
I'm very excited. I'm very excited. Oh, so many, so many English players on Borussia Dortmund, and he's a, he's one of many, of course, uh, as we <laughs> all know. And Jaden Sancho, not not um, featuring in this one, by the way, but many of his other uh, countrymen uh, were um, Erling Haaland, of course. Blah blah blah. Um, the first goal Duke Bellingham got there with a very nice finish. The commentators saying um, that Edison could have done a better job of saving it. Not convinced about that one. But um, Taylor, the equaliser in this game coming from uh, Riyad Mahrez from the penalty spot, uh, a handball given against Emre Chan. This is another edition of Ryan doesn't understand the rules of soccer because, uh, you know, Emre Chan heading onto his own arm and having the ball, mm-hmm. uh, having the penalty given against him. This felt, that felt harsh regardless of the rule. And it feels harsh, particularly when you cast it in the light of Bellingham's ruled out goal from the first leg. It feels like officiating has played a cruel trick on Borussia Dortmund across these two games. Well, I think when you frame it that way, probably. <laughs> like, if you if you connect it to another moment that should have been given. That's context. Uh, but I, <laughs> I, think, I think, like, I'm with you in the early stages because when it happens, like, yeah, I was rooting for Dortmund. I wanted one underdog team to make it through. I didn't love that the idea of, like, four of the richest clubs in the world being in the final, like in the semifinals, so I was not that Dortmund are poppers or anything, though I think they would say they are now. Uh, I think they they were like so. There's that moment of like, oh come on, like don't give it. They, they, like Man City have enough advantages; they don't need this one. But I think once you remove the emotion and watch it again, I think there's two key things there. I think the first is that he he heads it onto his arm, but his arm is outstretched. So there's the argument that he's making himself bigger. He's changing the course of the ball, which is fundamentally what a handball is going to be. But it's also, I think, that the original rule was penalty, which I kind of forgot in the moment, like thinking that it had gone to VAR and that VAR had overturned it. But in actuality, I think he never even goes, the official never goes and looks at the monitor because he has the ruling on the field of, yeah, it hit his hand. I saw that happen. And there's not much VAR is going to do about that because if that's what the decision has been made based upon, then that is the reality. So I think because the original call was handball and because the arm is outstretched, even if it's harsh, it is still probably correct. Fair enough. I'm still disappointed. I'm disappointed <laughs> in you for explaining I mean, it as well, to be honest. That's fair. I thought, like, because it was, it, was, it was a bummer in the moment because it did feel then like okay well now Dortmund have to completely change their game plan again and try to be attacking and figure out a way to make something happen I think it was also just kind of a confusing moment because we still have I'm assuming the commentators are calling from a monitor which is why they were both very sure that it was going to be Kevin De Bruyne even though one of the earliest shots of the penalty spot was with Riyad Mahrez standing over the ball so (laughs) that entire drama they created I don't think was real Uh, and Ryan I share your sort of skepticism about should Ederson have done better, given that he had like already moved to make a save off of the initial shot from Daoud and then has to get himself reset and then dive the other way when Bellingham shoots. So I felt like it was some odd choices from those commentators who also seem to be actively rooting for Man City. Both times they scored, <laughs> the, uh, the color commentator said, yes, and it was very <laughs> weird. It was a very weird thing. Rookie mistake to try and pick out Man City's penalty taker as well. I, I, I'm yeah. with Graham Rutherford in that Edison should take all of them for him here yeah, until the end of time. Um, but but let's, let's, let's move our attention to Man City. Joe, you mentioned that they, they had to change things up a little bit to, uh, to keep themselves in line in this game. No substitutions until Raheem Sterling waddled on with a couple of minutes to go for Riyad Mahrez. Um, what did they do exactly, Joe? 
So they started out in, in Sorry, yeah, that was, was cruel. That's a good choice of words. But it's it's funny. <laughs> they they came out in a 4-3-3 defensively Manchester City did, which is not something they've done recently at all. Certainly not something they did in the first leg. In the first leg they came out and defended in a 4-4-2 with Kevin De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva as that front two. So yeah, they're playing without a striker, but they're still playing with a front two defensively. Not so in this game. They come out in a 4-3-3 with De Bruyne as the 9, Mara's on the right, and Foden on the left. And it, it's fluid and it changes just like it does when they're in possession. But that was the rough general shape that I saw in this game until around the 30th minute. Which is, if we hearken back to you know, kind of my first comments on this game, when I felt like the tide changed a little bit away from Dortmund and and all the way over to City at that point. Dor- Dortmund had had too much control, I think, in Pep Guardiola's eyes. And and so he went back to the defensive shape that they've been running and that they've been executing for the last couple of months, at least as I can remember. They switch to the 4-4-2. De Bruyne stays up top. Bernardo Silva slides up with him instead of defending as the right central midfielder in a 4-3-3. It's those two guys in a front two. Mara's on the right, Foden on the left. And I think that helped them in a couple of ways. First, they get that familiarity that they'd had. They've run that 4-4-2 for hundreds of minutes over the last couple of months. So that's a big thing. And then it also helped them match up with... Dortmund's possession shape with Chan a little bit deeper and then you have Dahoud and Bellingham higher up the field. Dahoud and Bellingham then can be dealt with by Rodri and Gundogan, Gundogan, excuse me. And then you have Foden, then you have Bernardo Silva and Kevin De Bruyne up dealing with Emre Chan. And so I think the rotations work a little bit better defensively, so you add that to the familiarity that they had with that shape. That's the biggest tactical change I noticed in in this game and even the biggest tactical tweak I noticed in I think any of the Champions League games, UEFA edition at least, over the last couple of days. Yeah, and Joe, I think your your timeline is pretty dead on there because I think a key component of this is in the 25th minute is the moment when Kevin De Bruyne wins the ball off of uh, Matteo More, and then he has the shot that I think hits the post. And after yeah. that, I think Dortmund go much more conservative, including bringing – Holland had been kind of around midfield and I think was meant to be the outlet, but also that threat that kept – City honest at times. And the change that I saw Dortmund make was then Holland dropped much deeper and kind of regularly was like 30 to 40 yards from his own goal and then isn't nearly as big of a threat. You don't have to worry about him. You don't have to keep a couple people back to deal with it. You still want to, but it's not that same risk of him getting in behind really easily and now we're in trouble. And so as soon as I saw that happen and he set deeper is also, to your point, when I saw City change it up and try to get more numbers in, in advantageous positions. And I think you're right, Joe, that that four four two becomes so critical because it really easily transitions to a 2-4-4 when they're attacking, and it's the the left and right back step up and they become midfielders, and then the wide midfielders join that attack, and now you have like the numbers you need committed forward to be able to keep Dortmund pinned back, but also still have opportunities to keep the ball moving. And unlike Liverpool, they're not trying to kind of find a way through really quickly or not necessarily trying to hit you on the break. They will, but they're also content to move that ball and keep passing until a clear opportunity presents itself. And that's where I sort of feel like Dortmund played into their hands a little bit, took their foot off the gas, tried to be more defensive, and I think we're made to pay for it as a result. 
Uh, excellent stuff about the, the, the uh, Man City shape and what they did in um, in various stages of this game, gents. Joe, I'm interested in what you think about specifically the personnel we had at the weekend. Um, I think seven changes that um, Pep made against Leeds uh, to the detriment, obviously. But um, obviously saving players for this game and for some very important upcoming games as well, FA Cup and League Cup and so on, uh, which, you know, it's a pretty critical month for Man City is this. But presumably this is what Pep regards to be his best 11, which he kept on for almost the majority of the game. We've got De Bruyne up top. And as you mentioned there, with sort of Mares and Foden on the wings and, 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 and Silva sort of supporting as well. No clear striker, obviously. Gabriel Zeus not being involved in this. Does this tell us what Pep thinks his um, ultimate City lineup is at the moment and how, how he uses his players and how this strikerless formation will work? I think so, yeah. This looked like a lineup that we've seen from Pep recently. It was very similar to the first leg of this tie. The the one change, at least as I have noted, is Noah Jalconcello. Instead, mm. it was Zinchenko in at left back. And that one confused me a little bit, to be honest. We saw the left back invert a lot less, and that's been Cancelo's calling card for Manchester City. And so maybe that's why Zinchenko goes out there, because he was asked to stay a little bit wider. Maybe Pep thinks he's better. he's a better fit for that role relative to Cancelo. But, yeah, I mean, the shape the shape worked for City and possession was so fluid. I almost gave up trying to actually denote what it was because it changes so much, and that's kind of an example of how soccer is changing and evolving. Formations are becoming less and less useful to talk about, and, and we'll still do that because it is helpful to hear them. But it is difficult sometimes to actually denote what's going on and just using a few numbers. And so City at this point have kind of evolved beyond that terminology in some ways when they have the ball. But personnel-wise, I think it fits. You have De Bruyne, you have Bernardo Silva, you have Foden and Mahrez, and even Gundogan to an extent floating between the lines. Some stay wide, sometimes the fullbacks push high, and then that really does allow Mahrez and Foden to tuck inside and, and operate between, in this case, Dortmund's midfield and defensive lines. It's so fluid. The ball moves so well, and even if City aren't creating chances with the ball, they'll do it defensively. They'll do it with their press, they'll do it with their counterpress. I think City can accomplish their goal with... Almost any lineup of players that Pep has, but this lineup in particular looks very well suited to operate between the lines and to press, and I think those are things that Pep really prioritizes. I, th I think he prioritizes those two things for sure, Joe, and then it seems to be that he prioritizes that all of his players also be capable of playing central midfield. <laughs> yes. So look at that starting 11, like five of the attacking players in Bernardo Silva, Riyad Mahrez, Kevin De Bruyne, Phil Foden, and Ilkay Gundogan could all be central midfielders and all have been central midfielders at different points for him. So maybe not Mahrez, but I think I've seen him operate centrally at least. So you could see all three of them be deployed in some form of a midfield, and I think that speaks to their technical ability, but we've seen Zinchenko Chenko be a midfielder. We've seen him step centrally as well. Same thing for Kyle Walker. And even on the weekend, John Stones really was super high up and trying to connect passes and, and play one-twos to get himself into shooting opportunities and took plenty of shots. Mm. And I think he wants that level of variety and that level of like versatility to his team. The one other midfielder that's in there is Rodri, who's a player who I feel like we don't talk about that much, certainly not as much as we did when it was Fernandinho in that spot. But he is also of fundamental importance to what they're doing, obviously because he is the kind of fulcrum there sitting centrally, but also because when City were in possession, I saw him moving, certainly, to be open if their pass was on, but never really moving f more than like five yards away from Erling Haaland at any given moment. And not to say that he was man-marking him. He was, he was moving away to get open. But there was always a like second eye kept on Erling Haaland that I think Rodri was also responsible for being close enough that Haaland never looked like 
as attractive of a passing option as he normally does. And that was another part of Pep's game plan, that even in the attack he's defending, and aspects of his attacking game and keeping possession and frustrating the opponent also are a form of defending. So it's, it's again, a really interesting approach from uh, Pep Guardiola. We would expect nothing less, and in this case, it worked out. It didn't overthink, and that's always nice. Yeah, it's a small City, City's just the... City's just the 2021 version of 2008 to 2012 Spain. Come on. We've seen this story before. <laughs> I, we have. And with that in mind, with Barca in mind, with Bayern in mind, like the other thing that I saw from City that I think is so different from a lot of teams, this is my final thing I have to say about this game, I apologize if we've gone <laughs> long, is just that, um, that in contrast to Dortmund, when Dortmund go ahead 1-0 in this game, I understand why they do it. But as we've already talked about, as soon as cities start to look a little bit more dangerous, they drop. They get defensive. They're trying to cover two players at once and make sure everything is marked. And I get why you do that, but it does invite the opponent onto you. And what was so interesting to me is as soon as City scored that equalizer with Riyad Mahrez from the penalty spot, they're instantly high-pressing and so aggressively. And you can see the Dortmund players already kind of reeling from having conceded an equalizer, and now we have to play our way back in. And they start losing the ball. They start hoofing it long. They start playing it out of bounds. They start missing passes because I think their heads are already out of it. But rather than sit off and let them sort of get some calmness, get some passes going, and then Dortmund play their way back in, you're putting them under pressure right away at a time when they're at their most vulnerable, at least emotionally. And I think it's a big part of why Dortmund struggled to really create much in the second half when they desperately needed to. It's just on a really aggressive game plan from City, and it's one that I think we should expect to continue to see from them in the league, in the FA Cup, and in the Champions League. Wow. Why not? I didn't even think of Pep attacking emotional vulnerability, but there we go. I like the sound hey. of that. He's a master of all things. <laughs> all things indeed. Uh, one thing I would note about this game before we move on is um, we were denied the narrative or the story of Sancho against Foden, you know, the two kids who were yeah. in the same academy and seeing one, one of them staying with his team and seeing if he could break through the other going further afield to try and get some soccer. The moral being, they both did fine. So uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> the moral being, there's no clear answer to that conundrum. <laughs> so it's good to see them both doing well, even if Sancho, of course, not involved in this one. And the sort of heartwarming moment of Foden when he scores that 350 mile an hour shot uh, for the 2-1 goal, running straight to Pep to give him a little hug. I thought that was very, very nice indeed. Indeed. So, as I say, the semi-finals are set for this competition. Paris Saint-Germain against uh, Man City in some sort of oil um, pun derby, let's call it The that. oil cashico. Oil cashico, sure, why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, Chelsea against Real Madrid, the natural gas versus state money derby? I don't know what we'll call that. <laughs> but um, I'm intrigued. I'm Joe insist that I ask him for predictions um, on this show every, every week. So I'll, I'll start with him. I yeah. think actually I mentioned on yesterday's show that I've got a very sneaky feeling that Chelsea are going to go all the way. Um, <laughs> and I, I just feel like it's inevitable at this point, despite not being the obvious choice to lift this cup, as they were not indeed when they last did so. Joe, how do you feel about these semis? Oh, I do love predictions. I am so excited for these games. I think they're going to be really entertaining, especially City PSG. I mean, that is, there's so much talent on the field, and there's reasons for that that you guys have kind of just talked about in a slightly tongue-in-cheek way. But there's so much talent in this Final Four, to use March Madness terminology. I'm just going to say Man City are going to win uh, their their tie against PSG, and Madrid are going to win against Chelsea. I I'm very unsure about both of them, but uh, I want to make you happy, Mr. Bailey, and so that's where I'm going. Aww. <laughs> Taylor, do you want to make me happy? 
Uh, by not giving you a prediction? Sure. Because uh, I think with both of these, like, there's always a, f- a fixture in every Champions League round that you're sort of like, ah, I'll, I'll definitely have that one on or I'll watch it after the fact if something happens. Both of these, I think, are just so interesting. And I, I tend to just go back and forth of like, well, this could happen, but that might happen. But this could happen, but then this is going to happen. And I think... PSG, like, I think I said this talking to Christian Polacco of the Cooligans yesterday, that, like, until they prove they can do it, I kind of will never fully believe that they can. I think Pochettino has got that team playing better. Obviously, they have have the attacking abilities, and certainly Neymar is a great equalizer slash advantage giver. But I think Man City will be able to throw some things at them that they haven't seen, and if they can nullify Erling Haaland, I think that they can at least do... Maybe they only let him get two outright assists instead of two goals, but at least that's something. So I would give the advantage to Man City. Chelsea Madrid is, is really wide open to me because Chelsea have so many attacking options but have at times looked vulnerably sus- or defensively suspect, although Thomas Tuchel has done a good job of solving that one. Madrid have their own uh, injury issues in lineup, like permutations and formation questions. I, I mean, I could see it being an all-Premier League final. That said, I feel weird calling it an all-England final because there'll be like four English players involved. But other than that, I think it could be really interesting no matter what. Yeah, and if it isn't all-English... a lot of tap dancing there, Rockwell. A lot of tap dancing there, Rockwell. <laughs> I said one team. I said Man City. You all said, right. Yeah, you said all right. You weren't going to give me a prediction, and you kind of did. I'm, you did make me happy after all. Thanks. Yeah. You're welcome. Uh, but if we do get an all-English <laughs> final, we'll get a preview, I guess, with the FA Cup semifinal coming up this weekend too. Mm-hmm. So um, that's our... Champions League uh, wrap up there these these games will start on the 27th of April not that long away can't hardly wait when we come back after these messages CONCACAF time this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We are back. We're talking CONCACAF Champions League. Let's get to it with Toronto, who took on Leon, the assassin. 2-1 this one finished in the home of Canadian soccer, Kissimmee, Florida. Osceola Heritage Park this one took place in, which looked a lot like the, um, the stadium where MLS is back was held. But I had to look it up. It wasn't the same place. They just build everything in Florida to look like that, evidently. Um, bit of heart-in-mouth moment at the end, Joe, for Toronto. But they got it done with a 2-1 aggregate 3-2 result here. First of all, the disrespect for the wide world of sports in Orlando, Florida, <laughs> um, where the MLS's back tournament was held. I will not stand for such slander. Hang on. Um, I, before... I I'm not disrespecting <laughs> it. I'm just saying it looked very similar to the venue last night. You know that sort of classic Romanesque-looking building they had in the background? It looked yeah, identical. Yeah, yeah. And the camera angle is very similar. It's so close to the field, right? This, these stadiums are not meant for professional soccer. And there's, again, underlying factors behind why this is happening related to COVID and all of those things. But, Ryan, I thought Toronto FC, yeah, they had that little drop at the end where Lyon get the goal and, and start to threaten a little bit more after Toronto lose their legs. But, man, Toronto 
played so well in this game. Not only is the result incredible to beat the reigning Liga MX champions and to actually advance past a Liga MX team in the first round of this competition, that is incredible. The performance was really good as well. They played with only five first-choice starters under Chris Armas in this game because they have so many injuries on the squad right now. They played out of a 4-2-3-1. I thought they controlled much of the first half and even large stretches of the second half. They should have gone up one to nothing in the 29th minute with uh, Okello scoring a header off of a beautiful ball in from Michael Bradley. But Okello was, for some reason, ruled offside, even though he was clearly onside. And, and then eventually Toronto do get goals in this game. They looked crisp in possession. They looked pretty good pressing, and I thought they regained the, wall, the ball well when they counterpressed. This was an incredibly impressive performance from Chris Armas' team. Was indeed, and as you say, done with uh, many absences to uh, first-team starters. Taylor, do you have some impressions of how this one turned out? Yeah, I mean, I'm with Joe. I think it was also really nice to see somebody like Michael Bradley mm. uh, doing the things that like set him apart and remind yeah. us why he he has been so good for so long. That he is a presence in midfield when he's not being asked to cover a ton of ground. Uh, I thought he covered plenty of ground tonight, but I think uh, Preso definitely gave him. Uh, a decent enough cover at the very least to be able to get forward to be less focused on like I need to be doing that and that and that and that but also my attacking responsibilities as well and I think I forget which goal it was maybe it was the first goal but it might have been the second when he kind of strides through midfield gets a wall pass plays it wide and it's just sort of what we have come to expect from Michael Bradley over the years I know plenty of people will be rolling their eyes and frustrated because I'm not just automatically bashing Michael Bradley and to those who are I say that's dumb because he's real good and has been real good (laughs) and has been a faithful servant to the national team so I thought uh, he looked really good but I thought the partnership with Priest so was impressive, and then I thought uh, Bono, uh, Alex Bono, the goalkeeper's uh, housery attempts yes. there after that first goal were <laughs> were terrific. Full turtle, for, full yeah, turtle. Us. Yeah, dude, it was so good. Like for people who haven't seen it, Leon score the balls in the net. Bono, I think, is takes a moment to be like, ah, oh, they scored, and then remembers that he's supposed to kill time and just dives on that ball. Like, has no need to do that at all, but just completely covers it and then refuses to give the ball up. Falls over a couple more times. It was it was wonderful, time wasting and frustrating uh, in a way that we don't often get to see from Kaki or from MLS teams. Well, so it made me happy. Be, be, to be fair, he was stuck in a moment he couldn't get out of. Was Bono? Yes, he was. The YouTube. This is always coming. true. This is always true. And he did count to 14 seconds before giving the ball back. I love that we have more than good. one goalkeeper in World Soccer called Bono. It's wonderful. It's really <laughs> wonderful for me. It does Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, so Toronto That's in the quarterfinals will have uh, a pretty mean test. Cruz Azul, who, by the way, in their respective round of 16 tie, they faced uh, Arachi, Arachi. I'm not sure how to say it. Apologies from Haiti. Um, I've said that wrong as well. Uh, how do, you, do you say Haiti in this country? I think I'd say Haiti. We do. Yeah. Good. Jolly good. Pronunciation, that's fun. Um, They drew nil-nil in their first leg, and it was 8-0 to Cruz Azul in the second leg. They went through 8-0 on aggregate. So um, Cruz Azul pretty finely tuned for this this quarterfinal, I'd say. No, they absolutely are. They're going to be a strong opponent. Toronto got a tough draw, having to deal with two Liga Mekis teams in the first two rounds, in the round of 16, and then now again in the quarterfinals. But... I watched some clips of this game, of how Toronto responded after the game. Michael Bradley in the locker room leading this team. They have, they found an identity on the field under Chris Armas already playing out of a 4-2-3-1, 4-4-2, doing some pressing things, doing some possession things as well. And it's early days yet. I don't want to make any sweeping conclusions about how good this team's going to be this season. That would be really foolish. But man, they have a way of playing on the field already, and they have 
this presence in the locker room with Armas and with Michael Bradley and with the energy in that group right now, that looks entirely positive to me. So I have no idea if Cruz Azul will will blow past Toronto, if Toronto will blow past Cruz Azul, or however that leg that that uh, that quarterfinal matchup will turn out. But Toronto, Toronto have, have got to be in a good spot right now. They've got to feel like they're in a good spot right now after how they performed and come together in this competition so far. Joe, before we we move on to the other game, like which maybe I should be asking you this after that one, but I don't think your answer would be Philly, so I'm going to ask you here. Like, wh- who is the MLS team that has advanced that you're most surprised to see? I'm assuming Columbus still will, but of the teams that we know have gone to the next round, is Toronto the one that maybe you would have thought would have lost this one and yet is still alive? Yeah, absolutely. Toronto, I, I did not expect to advance. With a new coach, with a roster that right now is in shambles because of the injuries, Portland, Atlanta, Philadelphia, all playing against teams that they are better than. Atlanta had a tougher one against Alajuelense, but Columbus is a pretty easy matchup for them in the first round. No respect to Real Esteli. But, yeah, Toronto playing the, the one Liga Mekis team of all the teams in MLS that, that those teams have had to face. They had the hardest draw for sure. Well, we do have four MLS teams in the quarterfinals, possibly five soon. Uh, and one of those, of course, Philadelphia Union, who, as Joe mentioned, did take on Sabrisa. They won 4-0 in their second leg, 5-0 on aggregate. A scoreless game in the opening half, this was, Joe. But the floodgates opened thereafter. Um, Jamiro Montero probably having a time of it with two goals and two assists. Not a bad outing for him. No, not at all. He was phenomenal as the tip of the diamond in Jim Curtin's four-man diamond midfield. He looked phenomenal on the ball, finding space between the lines, driving the ball forward, passing the ball forward, getting in the box, uh, providing service into the box. He did just about everything you could ask for a number 10. Interestingly enough, when Philly are back to full strength, signs are pointing to him being the number eight on the left side of the diamond like he was last year when Brendan Aronson was the 10. And it looks like Anthony Fontana is going to be that 10, even though Fontana started as part of the front two in this game. So it almost seems like this is even a makeshift alignment from Jim Curtin. I don't know if I think Montero's better as a 10 or as an 8. I think he might be better as a 10, which makes life difficult for Fontana. But regardless, the midfield was was strong in this game. Mbizo, the right back for the Union, replacing Ray Gaddis this season, was really strong going down that right wing, combining with Bedoya, putting balls into the box. Not just lofted hopeful balls, but bent, curling whipping crosses into the box for Shabilko and for other runners in that space for the Union. Everything kind of opened up in that second half, but even the first half for Philadelphia, they were dominating and held Saprisa to very, very few chances. Joe, forgive me if you said this, and I, and I just missed it as I was writing other stuff down that you were saying, which was equally interesting. Uh, if it is Montero going back to the number eight spot and then Fontana going to the number 10, who would be the the attacker then for Philly coming in? Sergio Santos would be the guy to okay. partner next to Shabilko. He right. came off the okay. bench in this game. He's just been dealing with a foot injury, I believe, and so we haven't seen as much of him so far in preseason. This was a very big talking point on the uh, the Extra Time Guys uh, show on Twitter, whatever the new Twitter thing is that allows you to have conversations. And be yeah, Twitter them. spaces. Uh, yeah. There, was much, there was much discussion of, uh, of uh, Fontana as the number 10 versus Montero as the number 10. Oh, so, interesting. I didn't, was, I didn't listen, yeah. but yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I'm with him. I, I think Doyle was okay with it. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I'm, I'm okay. With, that's <laughs> that's the thing about Philadelphia. They have so much flexibility. They've brought in Leon Flock or Flach. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that. Who started both of these games as that left-sided number eight? If Montero slides down to that spot, then Flock's going to be on the bench. But he looks he looks good. A little bit raw, but so fast, so quick. A real asset defensively. Could play left back as well. 
even I think could play left winger if the union actually used wingers. They have so much versatility, and then you add in the kids. Jim Curtin brought on a pair of 17-year-olds in the second half, both of them central midfielders. So there's depth, there's positional flexibility in this group right now. The union are, man, if any teams in CCL, maybe outside of Columbus, I think we talked about how Toronto are playing so well right now, but the union might be in the best spot for the start of this season. Philly and Columbus actually play each other in week one of MLS this weekend. But just they have the identity, they have familiarity playing in Jim Curtin's system. They are looking strong headed into this MLS season. Absolutely. And an all-MLS uh, quarterfinal there with the Union and Atlanta as well. And a majority MLS teams in those quarterfinals, which is pretty wild, pretty entertaining stuff. One last question for me. I don't know if this is a, a bad question to ask, but is there any correlation between what we've seen so far with these teams in this competition as to how they will fare in MLS? I know there's, you know, for example, quite a bit of buzz about what Toronto will do this season Joe, did we get any tasters of how these teams are going to play out? Uh, which I realize, as I say, is a prediction question. No, and this is one I'll actually go with. Because the season is so long, we're getting not firm indicators of how good these teams will be, but we're getting indicators of how they'll play. And that's really useful, I think, for determining maybe the success or certainly at least the tactical alignment for these teams in, in the seasons. So you have Atlanta United. We know now... We have a better idea of how they're going to play under Hinze. We've seen that in two legs so far in this competition. Portland, it looks like it's going to be a generally similar alignment to last season, that 4-2-3-1 under Savarese. Toronto, now we have a better idea of how they're going to play under Chris Armas. The Union, things are the same. Columbus, things are the same. There are a lot of strong MLS teams in this competition. Columbus and Philly specifically, I think you could toss Portland in there as well, maybe. And then Toronto, and then Toronto is showing well as well. So... I think we can get some idea of what these teams are going to look like and maybe how good they'll be from this competition. Wonderful stuff. Taylor, anything more you want to put out there on the radio waves before we kiss this podcast goodbye? Yeah, I'd like to take credit for Philly's results because I turned in at halftime when it was nil-nil. Oh, it was you. Four nil. So yeah, I'll go ahead and take all the credit for that one and, and none to Philly's dedicated fight back and then the awareness that they had basically broken Saprice's spirit when they earned that penalty. <laughs> Great work by Fontana to earn that penalty and like throw himself forward just to make sure because there's contact, it's definitely the right call, but it is on the line and I do wonder if maybe if he doesn't go hurtling into the box does the referee call that one back and give it like just outside for a free kick instead of a penalty? So credit to him for earning that one. Uh, credit to Montero for smashing it and then sort of celebrating right in front of the goalkeeper, but not enough that it was a deliberate antagonizing thing that would have led to another fracas. But I, I thought Philly did a good job of kind of going back at Saprisa on every occasion without taking it to that next level where there's a 30-player brawl again. <laughs> well, you would have liked to have seen that again though, right? I mean, I w any opportunity to watch m my man, uh, Gleznez, the center back, just yes. toss people around, being <laughs> 19 feet tall, I think he is, it, it, I will take that at any time and every time. 19 feet. Sounds about right. Well, full credit yeah. to the union for that one, and full credit to you two gentlemen for providing this audio entertainment for the past hour. Joe, an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you. Thank you very much. Right back at you, Ryan. Taylor, I love you from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> I love you from all of my heart, Ryan. I'll break my heart. Goodbye. <laughs>